I hope everyone enjoyed your lunch. Before I get into questions, I'll announce next week's topic for the Thursday presentation. Is demographics and diversity changing Lethbridge? Are we growing bigger and better or just bigger? Presented by Sarah Ames. And a special SACPAW presentation on Tuesday, March 13th, entitled, Did the Accused Killers of Colton Bushy and Tina Fontaine Benefit from the Current Practice of Jury Selection? This will be presented by Ingress Hess. And I'd like to note the location change will be at the Royal Canadian Legion on 324 Mayor McGrath Drive. Time is 11.30 to 12.15 with a buffet lunch. Presentation, 12.15 to 12.45. And then at 1 to 1.30 will be the Q&A. No. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, it will be televised. Okay, so for question period, I'd like you to please introduce yourself at the mic and keep your opening remarks brief. I will limit your time to one question with a potential for a brief follow-up question. And with that, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Jennifer Mather. Questions? Coming right up. Hi. Boo. Henning Mundel here. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I enjoyed your presentation quite a bit. Mind you, many of the things that you mentioned, as we feel and, and we as a society, I know you don't, and I felt I don't, but that's not my question. Okay. You gave a very interesting, ta two interesting tables, well, more, graphs. The one, the one was the, uh, the, uh, the one was the uh, numbers of graduates in the different disciplines, and that was followed by the numbers of research chairs by gender. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would have found really interesting is to have seen that second table as a percentage. Like if you have very, very few women to start with in that area, then you, of course, it can be expected there'll be a relatively low number available for researchers. But as a percentage of the number, that would have been interesting to know and how, if that's different in the different disciplines. Right. And of course, it's not something I can conjure out of the landscape. And you but don't I, have that information. But I would have to say that the research chairs are both in the sciences and the social sciences. And there are many more women in the social sciences than in the sciences. Mm -hmm. Okay, You're right that we can't automatically assume the proportion of women or the proportion of senior women. There, there's one situation that I can mention that I didn't have a chance to mention. There, there's the tier one and the tier two, there's also someone that, uh, like super research chairs, tons and tons of money, and they wanted to find people who would not only come to a university, but who would bring other junior faculty, and they bring graduate students, and they bring postdocs, and they generated 10 of these chairs all across the oh, yeah. country. So this mm -hmm. is really the elite. Any women there? No. Ah. That, and there are, trust me, there are senior women researchers. As a matter of fact, there, there's a continuation of this because people were upset when it was 10 out of 10 men. So they said, well, we'll reevaluate that. We'll get 12 more people in these elite, elite research positions. 
and they've got one woman. And believe me, the proportion's not that small. Okay. What, no controversy? <laughs> Matt, ask a question. Okay, I just want to ask, while we wait for someone to get to the mic here, um, for me this really hits home, your talk really hits home. I, I am a woman in science and I, I see a lot of people having to demonstrate on their CVs that childbearing years are years of non-productive years, which I find a bit appalling. I was just wondering if there's any advice you can give to someone like myself who has not gone into a PhD um, or other women coming up behind me in terms of, you know, when it comes to managing child, child rearing years and, and your career. Marry an equal partner. <laughs> Sorry, I know that. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest and fair, University of Lethbridge has parental leave for men and women. And at this point, equal numbers of men and women take parental leave. But in fact, we have double the number of men and, than women in terms of the number of people employed there. But as a social change involving men more in the lives of their children, giving men the opportunity to have parental leave, uh, making men aware that children is everybody's responsibility, that'll make a big difference. So pick them carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas Mitchell, I... <laughs> I think you can encapsulate all of this in one word, progress, change. I'm old, not quite as old as Frank, but getting close. <laughs> and I look back on my life and my, my antecedents. My mother was a graduate from Glasgow University in medicine in 1918, married in 1921. She worked for a little while. That was the end of that. <laughs> no more. Even my grand paternal grandmother was a school headmistress. And as soon as she married, in the mid-1800s, couldn't work anymore. So we have made progress. And I know that now there, there has been a big push to try and create equality in, in a vast number of areas. But uh, unfortunately, I think the female species has <laughs> been given this gift of childbearing, and it's going to continue to influence things. Things have changed. I, when I went through veterinary school in the 1950s, we had four girls in a class of 60. Now the student intake with, those, uh, with women in veterinary science is well over 50%, somewhere near 60 or more. And so I think, I, I don't know how you, you, I appreciate the move and I've experienced in my life as a veteran research scientist, um, many capable women, but very few. And I wish you well, but I would like you to address this question of, how is, are things going to progress given the barrier of 
childbearing? Well, it's not actually childbearing we need to worry about, it's child care. And I mean, it takes nine months of pregnancy and then delivery to bear a child. So it's the allocation of child care to women that is the problem. So if a heterosexual couple are both working in the workforce and when the woman comes home and she does far more of the domestic labor than the man, uh, believe me, there are an awful lot of things that men are perfectly capable of doing for very, even very small children. No, they can't breastfeed. Sorry, we have to let that one out. But actually, I remember when my first child was quite small, very small, um, one of these advice booklets said, give the father something special to do, so that that is the time when the father and the son, in this case, were together. And I said to my husband, well, you want to bathe the baby? And he said, okay. And I thought, oh, that's one other job I don't have to do. And it was a wonderful time for them to be together. And I was talking to one of the members of the teaching center staff on campus, and he said, yes, I took six months parental leave with each of my children. They're my children, of course I'm going to do this. And I didn't ask him about equal allocation of time to child care, but I'm pretty sure that he would be very giving to his children in terms of child care. One of the things I was thinking about last week when I was thinking about this talk is I was thinking about it's not the women that are the problem. Women aren't the problem. Women shouldn't have to improve themselves. It's, it's laid on us by society in general. And that's another thing. I don't want to change to, to be more like the stereotyped masculine person. I don't want to be someone who doesn't care about children. I don't want to be someone who doesn't care about service. I don't want to change what I'm doing, but I'd like the men to change what they're doing so that the job at home is more equally carried. Does that make sense? Oh, good. Uh, my name is Mary Shillington. I'm a retired clinical social worker, so I'm fam more familiar with the social service kind of field. Uh, and uh, so a couple of things. Uh, I, I have been trained to do Myers-Briggs type indicator, which uh, is a personality thing. And, and we're noticing in that use of that, that where women used to be feelers and the opposite men were thinkers, now that's balancing out more. That the more men are feelers and, and more women are thinkers. And so that might affect how, what kind of professions you go into and how comfortable men feel about staying home and looking after their children. Uh, I, I would challenge you a little bit about w women aren't part of the problem because there are some women who will not allow the men to do the things that they do well, uh, which is I mean, the women, they think they can do mothering better or looking after the house better, and so they don't really give the men the freedom to do, to do that in a way that the men can, can do it. Uh, but I'd like to, you to kind of comment a little bit about um, how we can, as a society, both men and women, can share better, uh, especially when, you know, the, the women are a little resistant. Some women, not all women, but some women are a little resistant to that. 
Well, I wanted to say that, of course, you're quite right, that there are some women who don't let the men come together with the childcare. In, in some ways, what you can think of is, if, if a woman is staying home and caring for her children and her family, which, by the way, is not at all a trivial job, raising good children is very, very difficult. Um, anyway, if she's all invested in that, if her identity is tied around that, then it's very, very difficult for her to let some of it go to him. If she has more identity in other parts of her life, that will help women to say, it's okay if I give him part of that because actually I'm not just a housewife. I'm also good at this and this. So that's probably a good part of the solution to that particular problem. Okay. My name is Mark Edel. I agree with you 100% that society is the problem and the way our corporate structure is set up, the rat race, etc. But I see now that uh, I understand there are more and more women in university and the millennials were getting many more women graduates. And I think the millennials have, it's a completely different generation that we still don't quite understand. Certainly as a parent, it was a shock to me. My, uh, my daughter got a job and she was working and you know, your, your daughter gets a good job, you're so happy. And then she quit only after about two years. And I said, well, what happened? She says, well, my boss, he got all these new contracts and he wanted me to do all that. And I said, I can't do it, we have to hire somebody else. And he said, well, you'll have to work weekends and evenings. And she was on salary. She said, you know, the hell with this. And she quit. And I see that a lot more happening in this new generation. And maybe this is going to change society and maybe change this corporate rat race. Because I know her boss was absolutely shocked that someone would quit because he was expecting her to do much more. And she said, I have a social life. I have a life. I don't just have a, the work. So anyway, do you think the, the, this new generation is going to be changing our corporate rat race? Because a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, the competition between men and women and the child being, is part of the rat race. You know, you get rewarded for productivity and not of you being a human being and, and having a balanced life. I don't know, but I think it would be lovely if it did happen that way. Because, yes, clearly the corporate rat, rat race, and, and one of the reasons that women, I think, are not often seen in the university workforce is there is tremendous pressure to work and to work and to work. And, yeah, I know there are some people who say, well, you know, I'm not going to have children because I don't have any time to give to them. But I don't know if it's going to change. In fact, the funding situation for the universities is such that we're getting cut back. And I'm finding, I was thinking about that for many of my junior colleagues who've been hired in the last little while. In the sciences, it is common now for you to get a PhD and then do postdoc, postdoctoral training, okay, when you work with a specific professor for a couple of years here and then for a couple of years there. And then the people who actually get the jobs are the people who are very, very highly educated because they've done four years of undergraduate, they've done five years of graduate work, they've done two postdocs with two years each, and they have got paid during the postdocs, but clearly it's, it's kind of like a migrant lifestyle. You know you're not going to get hired at the same place. So I think the competition's getting worse, and that does worry me. Hi, 
I'm Jan Langford. It's my first time here. So thank you so much for organizers and speakers for having this forum. It's great. Um, I, I just want to say m my brother is a sociology prof at U of C, and he was telling me that um, there's a, a, a growing preference to hire new people coming into universities from the states these years, th these days. And he was, he was uh, attributing this to, um, you know, in the past, even in the, the older Trudeau days, there were federal laws put in place to protect Canada's cultural institutions. And universities were seen as part of that, Canadian institutions. Um, and so as part of that, there was uh, hiring practices uh, of hiring Canadians. And he was telling me now that there's um, more preference for looking at those good universities, which happen to be in the States, harder and harder to um, hire the qualified Canadians because they're up against these uh, U.S. counterparts. And as a result, the, the even it's changing what's being taught in our universities because the, the U.S. folks coming in have different research priorities, have different backgrounds, teaching priorities. So, you know, that makes me wonder, uh, in terms of your topic, of whether it's, it's beyond mentoring and it's beyond changing attitudes, and whether we need, I know affirmative action is, is a controversial thing and, and sometimes unpopular, but whether there isn't a need for um, an underlying policy or legislative uh, initiative to make change happen because we've seen it as I said in these other areas where you remove that protection for our Canadian institutions and things change and in, in the same way I think affirmative action has shown that where there are affirmative action programs that can be a way of increasing the numbers in, in uh, certain areas. So I just wondered about your thoughts about that, and I, and I don't know the universities, whether they've got those policies or have tried those policies before. One of the things about living a long life is I remember things that happened in the past. So I remember before I was a professor, I think when I was a graduate student, it was clearly the case there was a program to hire Canadians. And the initial reaction of administrators was, we won't be able to find good Canadians. And in fact, that wasn't true at all. They found a lot of good Canadians, and they stopped worrying about it. There were a couple of fairly short-lived programs on hiring women. And I don't know to what, ex to what extent they had success. I remember when I first came to University of Lethbridge, I went and visited colleagues at University of Alberta. I didn't know them, but you, you, know, you were supposed to sort of know your neighbors. And I went and talked to this one professor, and he said, oh yeah, that's right, Lethbridge. He said they hired some woman. <laughs> and I said, right, this some woman was a university research fellow, and I had six publications in the last six months. Thank you. I don't know about the balance between Canadians, non-Canadians, between men and women, and I think we've stopped looking at that and maybe we need to look at it again. We need to look at the academic workforce and see to what extent we're representative of the Canadian workforce. Um, I think we would encounter a lot of resistance. 
because we encountered a lot of resistance when we wanted to hire women, too. On the other hand, buried in that graph of science professors at University of Lethbridge was the number of assistant professors who were male and female. Now, the assistant professor is the beginning tenure track. They're the people who, 25 years from now, we're going to need to be deans and to be research chairs and all these kinds of good things, okay? And in the sciences, we have two female assistant professors and 11 male assistant professors. We used to say that the prejudice against women would go away slowly and that we would get a lot of assistant professors who were female and that these assistant professors would be able to work their way up and be full professors and deans and presidents and all these kinds of leaders. But that's not what we've got right now and that is something that we should be very concerned about because they're the um, outstanding performers of the future. They are our beginners and in the sciences, they're not women. So, since I have an associate dean sitting in front of me. <laughs> what's the significance Didn't of, say anything. What's the significance of having an associate dean in front of you, by the way? Is that <laughs> He's the one who could decide to change policies. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just checking. Uh, Terry Shellington is my Mind name. Mind you, it would be much better to have the dean himself rather than associate <laughs> dean because I, I'm sure associate deans would say, I don't really have the power. It's the dean dean that does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Terry Shellington is my name, and I thank you for a very stimulating presentation. And <clears throat> my comment or question comes under the heading of, did I hear you rightly? But <clears throat> as an, uh, almost an aside, you tossed out that there is no, if, if I heard you rightly, there's no parental leave in the United States. Correct. Did I hear that rightly? There is no institutionalized parental leave. I'm sure there's some organizations that have parental leave, but the mm -hmm. country doesn't have parental leave. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of that because, you know, in our country, that uh, legislation has come about because of several factors, the feminist lobby and... Um, and a valuing, a increasing valuing of family life and parenting, which Americans also have, and uh, probably some union pressure, which Americans have unions. So I'm, uh, and, and the evangelical right in the States has a very strong emphasis on family life and, and uh, parenting. So I'm, I'm just trying to make sense of, uh, maybe that's not your department comparing the two countries, but it's, it's strange. Okay, I did live in the United States for 10 years. I got my master's and my PhD in the United States. And the kinds of things I see as fundamentally different between Canada and the US is that Americans are very much individual achievement free enterprise people. Um, a funny way to put it informally would be to say that when we went to the United States, we thought that Americans were very selfish and that when we came back to Canada, we saw Canadians as being sort of give me a handout-ish. Now, th that's a bad way to put it, but nonetheless, we are much, much more socialist country than the United States, which believes in free enterprise and the accomplishment of the most talented and to heck with the others. Now, those are way overgeneralized. Please don't quote me, okay? <laughs> But the general ethos of the two countries is different. Similar, but different. Uh, Ken Sears, and as somebody who's marginally engaged with the academy, 
I couldn't help but notice that repeatedly in your talk, you used the word status. And from as a, from pretty much as an outsider, I look at the universities now across this country, and their status system is research, pure research, then applied research, then teaching, and that's really the way that people seem to get slotted into tenure tracks or get stuck as assistants, stuck as um, sessionals. There is a real class structure that has developed in the academy in this country and I think probably in North America. And because of that, does it seems to me that that builds a whole a further set of roadblocks for various minority groups, whether gender or racial, whatever, to get, you know, if you're not in a tenure track, you may as well forget it. You're not going to be the dean, you're not going to be the president, you're going to be stuck with what is essentially part-time work for most of your professional career. Could you sort of speak to that? And you know, maybe the university has to start to really change its priorities and change the ways in which it values work. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's an interesting paradox that the university, of course, by definition, believes in nurturing people to accomplish. The university, by definition, believes very strongly in freedom of expression and freedom to do this and to do that. And yet, we are an institution and, and all organizations work out this way. I don't know if it, I, I don't think it's possible to have an anarchic organization. Organizations just do this. I don't happen to have such a high priority on research that I don't value and work hard at my teaching. And as a matter of fact, if somebody says, well, which is important to you, research or teaching, I would say, well, it depends what day it is. Maybe it depends what hour it is, okay? Um, if I knew how to change it, I'd be the president. Yes. Hi, Knut Peterson is my name. Jennifer, thanks very much for coming to SACPA. Uh, I wonder if you could comment a little bit about uh, we have some uh, political leaders and parties who, whose ideology centers around uh, keeping women at home and washing dishes and taking care of the kids, and uh, that's about uh, where they should be. Uh, and certainly some of those people actually get to power once in a while. Could you uh, comment on that a little bit? So what you want me to ask why men succeed who depend on the domestic labor of women? <laughs> How about we've been scammed? <laughs> um, some of my colleagues, in fact, have a spouse who works with them and who, it, it's a sad situation in academia, and it's, this doesn't have anything to do with my university, but if you look at it, there's, there's many people who have a partner who is also a researcher. And chances are pretty good that the male gets hired and the female works with him, and that the male gets the glory and the female gets to work. 
without the glory. Maybe we shouldn't care about glory, but still. I don't know what we do about this. Um, the world is changing. I think that the men who say woman's place is in the home raising children and she should stay out of the workforce and do the job that she was born to do, I don't think we have very many of those people anymore. You think we have people like that anymore? Men who say, go woman into the domestic sphere, have the kids, take care of the housework, stay out of my business. I don't think we have, if we have people who feel that way, they really can't say it. Just to, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's not an influence. It's, there's a difference between saying all women should stay home and take care of children and saying, well, dear, I know you want to take parental leave, so you just you know, take leave from your job, and then you, maybe you'll come back part-time. In some ways, it's, it's too bad that we don't have a more logical organization of life. It would be perfectly reasonable for an academic woman to say, I want to have a baby, and I'm going to have six months leave, but it penalizes her in the workforce. It isn't that she can't do it, she can, but she doesn't have as many publications, she doesn't have as long a curriculum vitae. So by definition, the competition hasn't put into consideration that you ought to have a life. Does that make sense? Okay, and we'll just wrap up here. I have one small, small question. You mentioned the importance of a mentor, and I was just wondering if you could give us an example of someone maybe in your life who, who kind of led you to where you are today? Well, when I was an undergraduate, I was doing biology and chemistry. There were hardly any women in the classes. That's changed, thank heavens, okay? And when I was a graduate student, hardly any of my teachers, I can barely remember any of my teachers who were women. No, I didn't have any mentor. On the other hand, my role model was Marie Curie, and that's not a bad role model. Interestingly enough, very senior scientist, Marie Curie. Every summer, she and the family, all the family, Pierre Marie and the two daughters, they would take off for the country and spend a month on vacation. So that's another reason she's kind of a mentor for me because I know she believed that work was important and family was important and that you could have both. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pretty good role model. Great, and with that, I'd like to wrap up. I'd like to thank you for being here today, Dr. Jennifer Mather, it was a, a, a great conversation. And I'd like to thank everyone for being here as well. Have a great afternoon. Ask her for a take. At least you can succeed.